Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Now, on the program in recent weeks, I've been looking at the programs launched by some of Australia's major international arts festivals. We've looked at Perth Festival, where the festival has differentiated itself by featuring all Indigenous programming exclusively in its first week. More recently, we looked at Adelaide Festival, where their focus, amongst other things, has been on making sure that the festival is carbon neutral. Now, I'm joined on the line by Wesley Enoch from Sydney Festival, who's 2020 program was launched recently and Wesley one of the things that has really defined Sydney Festival is not only your commitment uh, as uh, an Indigenous Indigenous man to First Nations programming but you've also uh, this year very proudly and I think rightly so announced the fact that Sydney Festival is now the largest commissioner of new Australian work in the country. Oh, not just new work, but I'd say a broader field. Richard, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well, um, thank you. <laughs> no, we, we counted up. We were saying, oh, gee, we've been doing all right. And we counted up and we had 46 new commissions out of our program. And you end up going, that's a lot of work. And I think that's really about my appetite for risk as a maker, going, how do artists actually make work unless people take the risk on them and help support them? And, and festivals being this great time where audiences take risks to go a little further afield outside their, their normal boundaries to, to do things new and different. So, yeah, it's, it's been pretty amazing. But also this idea of collaboration. Many of the festivals, I think we've got this kind of almost competitive mindset set into the way we work, how we're competing with each other. But in fact, what's better for artists and for audiences is we collaborate and we find ways to, you know, bring um, artists in Australia, artists from around the world even, up onto this international platform to really expose their work and help support new ambitious work. How is that being achieved in your 2020 festival program? Oh, well, where do we start? I mean, (laughs) something like Black Ties is a really clear example of where uh, a number of major festivals getting together and collaborating through the Major Festivals Initiative, this initiative which helps commission work. So Ilbidri in Melbourne and um, Taria, uh, a Maori company in Auckland, making this big work about two families coming together, a, a Maori woman and an Aboriginal man getting married and their two families getting to know each other and all that stuff. And that's a major work. I mean, that's that's a budget of, uh, I think it's, oh, actually, if you combine all the presentation budgets, over $2 million. And that's something that, through collaboration, we can help a fantastic company like Obidgery do a, a large-scale work. Um, maybe uh, one of the other ways to look at the way we've been commissioning is to commit to production before the work is made. And there's a few works like that around, even in our international collaborations, so we were working with Cyril um, Testus, is a, uh, a, a French director, and he was looking at this new work based on the John Cassavetes film, Opening Night, and he's got Isabella Jani in there. So we were commit we commit to that show before it was even made as a way of kind of giving him a leg up, talking about him as an up. Uh, interesting director in in France. So the commissions are not just Australian work, but also the way we're developing relationships internationally. 
one of the things that's quite distinctive also about Sydney Festival is that it's very much a festival for and of Sydney. It's a chance to reflect, I guess, the culture of the city, the, the personality of the city as well. And certainly there's one of those personalities. Sydney is well known as one of the, the great gay capital cities of the world, thanks to the, the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. And there are definitely a number of there's a kind of glittering queer thread running through the festival program this year. But one of the works in particular I wanted to talk about is Betty Blockbuster Reimagined, taking oh, yes, this yes. revolutionary, groundbreaking 70s cabaret work created by Reg Livermore and remaking it for a new generation. And that's been a fantastic experience. Uh, a company, Redline, um, who runs the Old Fits here in, in Sydney, a, a small 70-seat theatre, um, they had this relationship with Reg Livermore saying, what are you doing, Reg, and what's going on? And Betty Blockbuster was such an amazing starting point. I mean, I think you you look to people like Moira Finnecane, Robin Archer, um, Reg Livermore, in different ways, the, the idea of cabaret of burlesque, of this kind of Weimar Republic-style work was all coming through in the 70s and 80s. And and we're saying to Reg, oh, you know, we should make that work again. And he said, no, 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 it's time to pass it on to the next generation. And in many ways, we are the inheritors of a lot of their work. What Reg did with Betty Blockbuster back in the 70s and 80s, what he did was extraordinary. And in fact, I think influenced the kind of cabaret culture we have today. You know, we are world leaders in circus and in cabaret stroke burlesque, you know, variety performance, if you like, across the globe. People look to Australia for the different trends and different artists. You you only have to look at somewhere like Briefs and their impact, you know, to go, that's amazing. Or in circus, you look at Circa or Cassis or or any number, actually, of, of different circus companies. And to say, you know, we are leaders in a particular form. And the Spiegel tent form in Australia is like absolutely out there so to put betty blockbuster which is one of these very early beginning points if you like of this fascination of the rebirth of cabaret in australia put it into the mouth of a new generation we're looking forward to that it'll be fantastic josh josh quantart who's the like i keep calling him an old hoofer like he's good old kind of singer dancer from way back and he's going to reprise this role of betty blockbuster amongst the other characters and it'll be in the spiegel tent during the festival now, some of the other queer works in the program, you've got Poof, Secrets of a, of a, of a Magician, for example. You've got uh, the artist Orville Peck, who's a, a, a queer yeah. country singer. So there's definitely a range of different kind of, uh, I, I guess, different facets of contemporary queer identity being explored in the program. Yeah, and it's interesting. I don't want to take too much credit for, for this being a kind of uh, considered thing. It's really about what fascinates me and what kind of gets me going. A lot. I've got this kind of fascination with uh, alternate voices outside the mainstream. I love this idea of um, the political voice through theatre, um, a voice of change as well. If not theatre, then dance. Or like, there's one work called Frontera, which um, uh, Dana Gringis, who uh, Animals of Distinction, she did Monumental that came through the country a couple of years ago. She's doing this work, Frontera, talking about boundaries and borders and people crossing borders and being pursued. And you go, I think the arts work best when it has something to say to society, not just to fascinate them, you know, kind of to, to, to if you like, distract them from life, 
that's fine. I'm not talking about the validity or not of that. But this idea of when art has something to say to the world, it actually can help change a city, can help, you know, through its storytelling, look at us in a very different way. And as you said, Sydney, unlike many other festivals, um, is, is I think it's 80, uh, 87% of our audience come from Sydney. You know, our half a million attendances, most of us are people who are living in Sydney. And we're not necessarily focused on that kind of tourism market or the cultural tourism conversation. We're interested in cultural conversations about our city. And speaking of cultural conversations and and the power of those conversations through art to change minds, change uh, the way we think, one of the things that I think is really important to talk about in your 2020 program for Sydney Festival, uh, it is uh, coinciding with the 250th year of Cook's Landing in Sydney and the conversations around that that you're working on, both in relation to Australia Day, Invasion Day, and the idea of... Yes, you can still celebrate that, but also how important it is to commemorate the day before, the day when everything changed. So you've programmed events around that, including a conversation around rethinking nationalism. Yes. I mean, I think what what we've inherited from, let's say, the John Howard years when he was prime minister of the country, what, what he did was very much look at Anzac Day, uh, Australia Day, uh, and, and this kind of nationalism, this national identity based on these big commemorative events. And and he pumped them up without giving enough sense of what the rituals are. Interestingly enough, Anzac Day is a really good structure for a ritual, ritualised day, a dawn service with, with music and poetry and speeches and heartfelt emotion through to a, a, a parade, from a parade that goes into, you know, a gathering of mates playing two up, drinking and, and talking about their time in, in the service, all their family members. And in fact, in many ways, it's one of the largest peace rallies in the world where the whole nation stops and thinks about peace. And for me, Australia Day, the 26th of January, has become a bit kind of empty. It hasn't got enough ritual. It doesn't really exist as, as a kind of important date. It's just, you know... The lamb ad is the thing we look forward to more than anything else. What's the lamb ad this year? So for me, I wanted to say the 25th of January, the day before it changed, is an interesting, if you like, parentheses around the 26th. Um, Noel Pearson talks about this. He says that, in fact, there are three, if you like, dominant narratives of the country. The longest continuous culture on Earth, the British colonial project, and also the most... um, multi-ethnic, multicultural nation on earth, and that those three narratives need to exist, especially on our national day. So for me, I keep thinking, oh, let's put back the long weekend. Let's, let's have the Saturday, which is the day before, and looking at the indigenous sense of um, survival and the day before it all changed, the 26th, if you like, of this, this uh, British colonial project. And then let's add a day, the 27th, which talks about those who have come to our shores and who have brought such cultural and and ethnic kind of mix that makes us who we are. And that we do this amazing vigil on the 25th where we ask the people of Sydney to come to Barangaroo Reserve and sit vigil from dusk of the 25th through till dawn of the 26th. And this year, uh, 2020, we'll be also looking at um, smoking the city, moving through the city, uh, um, in a procession and smoking out the city as a way of preparing for an almost indigenous new year kind of thing. 
If you've just tuned in, my guest is Wesley Enoch, who's the uh, Artistic Director of Sydney Festival, or possibly the Festival Director, because you have two different titles listed on the Festival website. (laughs) Uh, And we're talking about Wesley's uh, 2020 Sydney Festival program. Now, in terms of some of the the new works that are in there and the the works that are being restaged in Sydney for the first time for Sydney audiences to see, there's a couple of specific works I wanted to talk about just briefly, talking about that idea of the, the night before before everything changed. You've got the world premiere of Jane Harrison's play The Visitors, which I saw yeah. a staged reading of, I think, five years ago as part of uh, the MTC's Cybeck Electric yeah. readings. Such a, a, a potent and, and powerful and entertaining yet provocative piece of theatre. Yeah. I mean, Jane and I worked on um, a play called Stolen about 20-something years ago, um, and, and she's done a whole range of plays. But this play, The Visitors looks at a gathering of Indigenous people on the 26th of January, 1788, and their basic discussion is, will they let the boats in or not? And it's a wonderful kind of um, unpacking of the issues, but as you say, in a very comic and beautiful way, and we'll be adding that to the conversation. I mean, I've got this thing where Indigenous programming, you know, First Nations programming is part of what we do. It's not a special occasion. It's what we do. You know, queer voices is what we do. The more we get a sense of, if you like, normalising these voices and saying that we're here to, to to talk about the things that are important to everyone, that's what I think is really interesting and should be pushed more and more. You've also got the work The Aspie Hour, a cabaret about uh, living with Asperger's, framed through the eyes of two young artists who are obsessed with musical theatre. It's a delightful piece of work. I'm so glad Sydney will get to see it. Yeah, I love that. You know, that's the thing, too, when you, when you see artists who do this great work, because it was at um, Melbourne uh, Comedy Festival, and, you know, and it won all these Green Room Awards. And it's just such a shame that we don't share in this collaborative spirit more work. I mean, Colossus is the other one that's coming around and doing the rounds, Stephanie Lake. And it was great to see Melbourne Festival remounting it after its fr- uh, Fringe um, premiere last year. And now to look at Perth and, and Sydney Festivals picking it up, I think that's what we can do. We can really amplify the Australian voice as long as we just get off our high horse about exclusives and premieres and actually say, what do we do? What we do in a collaborative environment is so much more important for the nation in terms of a cultural voice, especially, you know, we're all talking now about the funding cuts that are coming through from the Australia Council in terms of four-year funding, um, the New South Wales cuts as well, there's bits and pieces coming through. And so the bigger issue we have is, how can festivals and major organisations step up to help support the small to medium sector as well? Sydney Festival is running from the 8th to the 26th of January 2020. I've barely scratched the surface of the programming <laughs> with Wesley Enoch, uh, but I do recommend people jump online and check out the festival program and consider a trip up to Sydney at some point to catch some of the many shows we've talked about and the many more we haven't been able to squeeze in. Sydney, uh, maybe, uh, Wesley, I can uh, help single-handedly kind of increase the cultural tourism numbers at Sydney Festival. Ah, well, look, look. the more debate and more discussion, the better. But And get online, so sydneyfestival.org.au. It's pretty easy to get hold of. Wesley, thank you so much for speaking to us this morning and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. You're very welcome, Richard. You have a good day too. Triple R. 
Time for us to talk circus. Uh, the women's circus here in Melbourne have been presenting work since 1991, uh, and they have a new show opening tonight called The Drill. I'm joined in the studio by Penelope Bartlow, who is the creative director at the Women's Circus, and Devin Taylor, who is the producer of this show and executive director of the company. Welcome. Hello. Good to be here. <laughs> so for people who aren't familiar with the Women's Circus, Devon, what's the company's ethos and aim? Ooh, well, we are a, a circus a company based in West Footscray, but our aim, I suppose, is to provide opportunities for uh, women, trans and non-binary people to connect with their creativity, meet new people, um, take supported risks and, uh, and, and learn new skills um, in a really supportive and inclusive environment. So we've got a pretty diverse program. We run a lot of circus training activities. Uh, and then from there, we, we work with our members to create bold new works like the one we're premiering tonight or smaller creative projects in partnership with local or um, other arts organizations. And we often also deploy circus as a, in, in the social circus model where we'll work with sort of marginalized communities and, and, and use circus as a tool to connect them in and, and have the same effects that we have on our members, I suppose. Yeah. Now, for this new production, The Drill, uh, it's uh, exploring the history of The Drill Hall, which is where the company is based. Penelope, am I right in thinking this was a space originally literally used uh, as a drill hall, i.e. for drilling m people in military formation? That's right. Um, it was built in 1914, and originally there were um, young men who were training outside, and the community... Um, there were some hooligans who were throwing rocks and jeering the, the young men who were doing their drills. And so the community um, rallied and had the drill hall built. But fairly shortly afterwards, the community, this anti-war, anti-conscription sentiment started to infiltrate. Um, and that the, our actual space has been at times a men's only space. So it's with sweet irony that we are in there now. In terms then of presenting that history, there's all kinds of interesting challenges that arises. If you're talking about uh, a male space and you have female and non-binary performers then embodying that history, can, talk, talk to us about that tension. So, in fact, that's the, that's the catch, right? Everyone thinks, oh, war, and you think about trenches and guys running around in military gear and helmets or whatever. We're not looking at that. We're looking at the untold, the forgotten stories, the, the stories of the invisible people or, you know, like the Aboriginal people. What happened to them? Their stories are so hard to find. Um, what, where were trans people during the war? And it's tricky, right, because history is told through a binary lens, but we've found ways to, um, to, to make these stories alive. And is part of that using the power of imagination to explore a what if and how much of it is actual documented work? Because, for example, the theatre work that uh, Wesley Enoch uh, directed quite a few years ago, now Black Diggers, looked very specifically at the experiences of uh, Indigenous soldiers in wartime. So we know these stories exist, but finding them, and particularly stories, trans stories, for example, at a time when people trying to may not have even had the chance to try and pass. Yeah. That's, so it's... It's been really challenging because of the way the history is and we've we've done a lot of research to, to give it a really solid foundation, the show. 
I found one story of a young woman who desperately wanted to be a soldier. Now, we don't know whether she actually identified as female or not, or even if she had the language or the culture around her at the time. But she was 16 from Adelaide, bought, uh, bought bits and bobs of uniform, cut her hair, jumped on a lifeboat, took a bag of lollies, and then got hungry when she was halfway, you know, to Cairo. <laughs> and they, um, they, they found her in the kitchen stealing food and said oi you and she was they they she said i'm a soldier and they threatened uh medical and she burst into tears and said i'm not actually male so they sent her home but we've used that story to explore um trans and gender diverse material in the 1914 space if you want what a fantastic piece of history to unearth and discover. Well, it's been wonderful too because we're, we're really lucky. We've got the Footscray Historical Society at our doorsteps as well and they've been really wonderful in the early stages of coming on board and sort of opening up some of their archives um, and trying to dissect uh, and, and discover local stories as well that we could um, riff off of. I guess there's none that were sort of like word for word reenacting. It's definitely um, more evocative of these foundation stories that we discovered. Yeah. So in the, in that way, the the show is has a dreamlike quality to it. There, it's visual theatre predominantly, but there's a lot of interactive work with it so and it's every nook and cranny of the drill hall i no longer have an office i have a virtual <laughs> office that's been deconstructed and graciously our next door neighbors the snuff puppets are letting us use their printer and wi-fi um and so that's been really lovely sort of unco- you know reimagining the spaces that we inhabit as well so the kitchen has been transformed into a kitchen in 1914 and our community room that often sees artists come and make work is now a hospital um so so, so there's sort of nine different spaces that audiences will move through. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure. That's the one thing I like to say. You will be guided through the spaces. But it is a promenade piece. Sort of. You, yeah, it's, it's sort of not... a magical piece in the sense that you there, there are different pathways that people will be guided through. So if the three of us attend, there's a chance that we might come at the other end having had a slightly or fairly radically different experience. So Which it's not is, so much choose your own adventure. You get allocated a pathway. So there are, I think, eight different pathways yeah. that you can take. So I love that idea that we can all share in an experience but have a different experience simultaneously, which is true of any work of art. Yeah, this one can, highlights that, yeah. I, though, I think. Yeah. And ultimately, I think, you know, I think there are expectations that people have. There are conventions that people expect. Uh, and we're sort of busting some of those conventions a little. Um, what In terms of conventions, and if we're talking circus work in particular, uh, people will be expecting ta-da moments where kind of they will want to just pause and applaud or they will be expecting certain apparatus and certain physical kind of vocabulary and movement and circus tricks, for want of a better word. Are you subverting that? Well, I think the one thing I'll say, and I'll let Penelope talk to the content of the show, but uh, women's circus... Uh, we present works that tell stories and we use this, the form of circus and theatre and performance and visual theatre and music to kind of transport people on that journey. So I think there are certainly going to be some ta-da moments, but there are some people in this show who have never performed before 
ever. This is that they've done six months of training with us and we've taken them on a show journey. So there's a wide variety of skills and skill levels that you'll, but one thing that you will have is a beautiful experience and a story that will come out. And there's also a couple of cast members who've been involved in every single women's circus show yes. since the company was established uh, in, in 1991. Yeah, we've also got some of them. So we've got a team of marshals. So those are your guides on the pathways and they're all volunteer roles. They're not performers in the sense that they're not circus performers, but they're contributing to the performance. And what's been beautiful about that is some of our alumni have come back. So we've got Robin Peck, who's one of our founding members, who's, I don't know, maybe in her 70s or 80s now coming back. So it's a really nice intergenerational, um, multi-layered kind of community event, which is really lovely. Now, Penelope, you're very well known as a puppeteer. (laughs) How is that kind of art form and that aesthetic helping shape and and kind of navigate through this work? So there are some little touches of puppetry in some of the spaces. Um, But I think really when you speak about puppetry, you're you're talking about objects and object manipulation. So it's that bringing the finesse to how objects are handled in space and we regard the object even if they're not necessarily being brought to life it's with a certain regard that I've asked the performers to approach their handling of objects but yes I have managed to sneak a little bit of puppetry in (laughs) and we're working with the wonderful Emily Berry as our designer so it's very design driven piece as well as a community driven piece Um, and like the level of detail of the the design I think is quite beautiful the work we're discussing is The Drill, uh, created and presented by the Women's Circus and on from today, the 21st of November through until the 1st of December, uh, and I'll give all the booking details and so forth shortly. But I love the fact that this is um, evoking the history of the building, but it's, in, it's kind of queering the history, mm-hmm. uh, It's but it's also still talking about the experiences of Footscray as well and the people of Footscray and the people of the West. How important was it to be true to the place in which you work and operate? Very important. And that was why so much of our history seeking was localised. And there are, you can find in some of the posts or the performance areas, uh, materials that are very much localized so you know 1918 postcards from such and such a street in Footscray that delivered to the hospital for example that kind of thing so very localized I also think you know as a as an organization that's been around for almost 30 years like it you know I've, I've we know that Women's Circus has also informed the kind of landscape of Footscray so I think that kind of level of of layering um was really important to us acknowledging our impact and our kind of connection to place and then the site that we inhabit also sort of reflecting the the deve- the, the changes in Footscray. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's been beautiful to experience. Yeah. The Drill is on from the 21st of November to the 1st of December, Wednesdays to Saturday at 8pm, Saturdays and Sundays at 3pm. There's an Auslan interpreted performance on Friday the 29th at 8pm an audio-described performance on Saturday the 30th at 3pm. Tickets range from $44 for 32 concession, $60 if uh, for solidarity tickets if you want to kind of make a donation on top of your ticket yep. price to the company, uh, and if you uh, and sponsored tickets at 44 Yeah, they're like a pay-it-forward style, yeah. which has been great. We've had a few 
few people pay it forward, and it's been lovely to pay it, you know, pass it on to the person who um, so, needs it. Which means that you can see a show and then kind of facilitate somebody else to see that show yeah. as well, which is fantastic. The location is the Drill Hall at 395 Barclay Street, West Footscray. You can book by calling 9687 3665. That's 9687 3665. And you can jump online to book and get some more info at www.womenscircus.org. .au. Devon and Penelope, thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R and Chookers for the season. Thank, thank you. you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. It's time to return the conversation to the visual arts and in particular local <coughs> practice and local makers. The Moreland Summer Show 2019 Language and Liberty is an annual celebration of work by the Cunahan Gallery in Brunswick uh, of work made by artists living or working in the city of Moreland. To tell us more, uh, curator uh, from the Cunahan Gallery, Victor Griss, and artists Janelle Lowe and Francis Dapawelu-Welu. Welcome to Triple R, the three of you. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Victor, let's start with you. In terms of kind of curating a show that is looking at uh, and responding to the environs, the locality, the history, the place of Moreland. How many artists are living and working in the city of Moreland, roughly, that that you start with before you then have to kind of par it down to selected works for this exhibition? Well, uh, Moreland's actually extremely lucky, uh, not just with artists, but with all kind of creatives, um, musicians, uh, writers, songwriters, and, uh, of course, artists. Uh, we've got studios peppered all over the municipality and uh, we had uh, uh, over 70 artists uh, included in the Moreland Summer Show this year uh, responding to this year's theme which was language and liberty. Um, So each year the Moreland Summer Show has a selected theme uh, and uh, we chose the theme language and liberty this year uh, as a kind of a nod to Noel Cunahan. Uh, with his involvement in the free speech movement uh, and also uh, 2019 being the uh, UNESCO year of Indigenous languages as well. So we thought there was a really great opportunity for artists to explore both these kinds of things and obviously uh, in the social and political ether there is plenty to talk about. Now, uh, Janelle, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice before we talk about specifically the work in the exhibition. I should have brought notes. Everyone else has got notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I was talking to my uh, to students about this yesterday, actually, and I was trying to sum up my practice in a sentence, and I guess I boiled it down to it's about it's about identity, I guess, everything that I'm exploring. And it's about, as a woman of colour living here in Australia, it's about approaching everything and being responded to as, as an outsider, I guess, everything and everywhere, you know, that I go and what I do. Um, so a lot of my work is just sort of, at the moment, it's trying to reconnect to my, like, to my, like, cultural, like, Asian heritage, I suppose. Because um, you're the first member of your family to be, you know, born outside yes. of Asia. Yes. I don't belong in Asia. I don't belong in Australia. There's definitely a feeling of that a lot of the time. So it's finding that space in between and finding my own sense of belonging, I think, that I'm always looking at in my work. And Francis, talk to us about yourself and your practice as well. Oh, just before I um, speak, I need to speak language because it is the year of Indigenous languages. So Malolale. 
Ko hoko ngoa mo sese tapo walo o ko ao he me honga mo vavao mo kolomato anu kolofa. Um, I, uh, I would cast myself as a political artist um, and multi-medium so I can make work basically out of everything and anything but I have a background in uh, fashion. Um, I worked uh, in the fashion in the rag trade in New Zealand so my, my um, I have a diploma in, in fashion but my, my art practice is basically using lots of materials, using um, everything and anything, trying to recycle stuff as well, which is big, which is and which is becoming a, a so much greater mm. part of I think so many artists <laughs> practice that notion of how do you work sometimes with mediums that might be toxic or mm. uh, and but work in a sustainable way. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, your practice, for example, working with textiles, wearable mm. art, yeah. and print media as well. Yeah. How often are you able to repurpose a piece of fabric, for example, to use in a new piece of work? Yeah, so this year I've done that. I used an old jacket that I might have fit into years ago. (laughs) Um, Smelly, sweaty, it's gone to a few gigs. And I thought, look, it's the old classic old school denim jacket that I've repurposed into. And I think living in Brunswick, I really like just visually what people are wearing it's it's almost like a language to me and and what i see a lot of is um lots of people with badges or they've drawn on their jackets of what 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 they they believe in what they're trying to um, they're trying to get their own little p- political agenda out. Literally wearing their hearts yeah. on their sleeves almost. Yeah. Well, not literally, metaphorically. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's what I've really explored in this is, is trying to use a denim jacket and... Um, amping it up a little by by putting a lot of slogans in which I believe in, but it's also too maybe a nod to the punk era that was kind of lots of safety pins and anarchy, you know, pinned on. So it's a lot of so nod to that era as well. And, and I feel like that's coming back. That that denim's never going to go out of style. Um, it's the the working per- person's um, clothing. Everybody's got a denim jacket, and we've stuck a badge on it or torn it up. Or so I've tried to to repurpose that just for the purpose of the show and I, yeah um, and it was fun to make, it was fun to do rip it up, tear it up <laughs> Francis, what about, talk to us about your work that's in the exhibition itself uh, So um, this was something new and it was something really fun to do it was a collaboration with Negative Press which is a really nice also local printmaking studio and what I've done is I've created a series of posters and it's a bit weird to talk about but they're called Dead Parents Posters and the best thing about the exhibition opening was getting a lot of people showing me photos they'd taken of parents looking at the poster, which says, I have to wait till my parents are dead to make the art that I want. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's about filial piety, and it's about kind of feeling trapped, uh, being able to express myself, but at the same time also wanting to, like, kind of push back against that as well but it's a really weird in between absolutely so. I, it's because there are all things that you that we want to say or do mm. that it's kind of like oh can't <laughs> mum finds out or kind of they will be embarrassed or they will be hurt so yep. kind of it, it, kind of <clears throat> finding that spot where you can push back on one level yes. but not offend or shock or alienate too greatly definitely about that um and the fun part of trying to show that in between so there's a text one poster is text just really plain text and one poster is really hard to see um it's cream screen print on white 
So you kind of have to duck around to actually make sense of the image, but it's an archival family image of my grandparents. So, so which is also then speaking to that, the, the way you have positioned yourself and the way audiences position themselves or anybody viewing work as yeah. well. So it's a physical embodiment of the different lenses through which we, we look at the world. Totally. I, just, I think attention is a commodity and I like messing with people mm. a bit in the space. I like forcing people to kind of move around to actually get a sense of the work. So, yeah. It definitely did that. <laughs> Victor, what was it about both Janelle's work and Francis's work that resonated with your curatorial vision for this exhibition? Well, I think it was the strength um, of the, the text initially. They both had that um, uh, an immediate impact, um, and I guess it it, uh, it it reminded me of that expression: you know, "Art is a weapon," um, and. Um, uh, I think f- with Janelle's work, it was a combination of that kind of on on one on the on one hand, the text kind of had this sort of sledgehammer kind of approach, and then and the print next to it had the kind of the velvet kind of feeling about it. Um, and uh, with uh, Francis's work, it, there's just so many great um, great uh, phrases on it, um, which uh, are both are both incredibly powerful, but there's also an underlying kind of uh, a sense of humour in there as well, um, but uh, I think in those works in particular, you know, carry that very strong textual um, uh, strength. Yeah, art that is literally speaking to us. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And there, I mean, there's many other works in the, of course, great works in the in the exhibition that use text as well, and we've got all uh, all manner of media as well. Um, we've got uh, video works, sculptural works. Um, uh, photographic works, collage, um, and uh, probably uh, installation. You got everything. You got everything. Yeah, that's right. So there's a real. I mean, it's 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 great. Uh, it's it's our most popular show of the year, and I think it's because people love to explore that and see that diversity of media and voice, and and also presumably it's so popular because uh, it is. Uh, recognising and celebrating locality mm. and local artists mm. who are making work and speaking to, to locations. Well, we all love to see what's going on in our backyards, whether it's totally. uh, or our neighbours' backyards, whatever the case may be. Totally, totally. I think it's, it's, it's the dialogue it creates as well um, because we've got artists in there who are aspiring and emerging up and, you know, we've got the full range up to, you know, very established professional artists. But I think there's a conversation that's happening in the space as well. I think that's my favourite thing about um, being involved with Cunahan Gallery and particularly with the Moreland Summer Show is that I feel like there's definitely still a barrier with a lot of art galleries where people feel a bit afraid. We were just talking about this yeah. earlier. People feel afraid to go into the spaces like they you know, are a bit intimidated or like whatever. But I think Cunahan Gallery always has a sense of accessibility to it and always strives for that sense of accessibility and like... The my whole house got into the show, yeah. which was really oh. nice, and like it was one of my housemates' <clears throat> first ever show, and I was so excited, and it was just nice to that equal opportunity kind of feeling to it. I think is really important, and I think is really great for co- a sense of community. So hmm. now, I guess a, a question uh, for both of you, Janelle and Francis, talking, thinking about kind of text in art and text based art. I mean, artists have been using text uh, obviously in their work for decades, arguably centuries, if you go back to kind of uh, medieval illumination and so forth, but kind of more recently and potently people like Barbara Kruger, for example. Uh, 
and it feels to me, I, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like over the last decade or so, there's been a swell in popularity of artists using text in their art. And I'm wondering, would you agree that that's the case? And if so, what's perhaps behind that? What's driving that? Is it, is it a response to conceptual art and people wanting to say, no, here clearly and directly is my message? I think um, for me, I think text is really important, but it's also to... The, the text that I used on the denim jacket is not going to work if it wasn't on a denim jacket. I mean, we can look at historically movements like the Black Panther. So not only did they wear um, leather jackets, berets, but uh, daishikis. So they repurposed an African garment um, for protest. So what I was looking at is... Um, you know, denim came around, what, in the 60s and 70s, and it it wasn't a garment for the working person. It was like, um, you know, you were going to a festival and your denim flares, or it, it was a sign of, of people who were protesting but um, might not have had a voice to. It, it was the, the anti-garment almost, because so, it was a working denim was a working fabric, a working men's garment. So when it was repurposed by the youth, you know, that's how we're going to protest. So I think it's just about me looking at the jacket itself, looking at the history of of denim. But also, too, it is that, you know, so I've tried to amp that up a bit by, by putting text on it because that's what the youth are doing. Um, that's what I'm feeling like, you know, young people are saying to me, look, if... if you know, this is how I'm going to get um, my message out. I'm going to either draw it on a T-shirt, I'm going to write it on my clothes because I can't carry a placard every day. Um, and we'd all like to carry a placard. I'd love to carry a placard every day, but it's, you know, I just can't fit it in my bag. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a bit impractical on a I know, right. <laughs> Excuse me, my placard's in the way, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it is about, you know, I always look at the history of, of clothing if I'm about to put something into a show. So it's, it's, but text is really important because for some of us, and particularly, you know, um, you know, English is my second language. It's, um, you know, it's about trying to get my voice heard. So it's that's the reason why I use text. Whereas, you know, I can write something in Tongan and people are going, "That's I don't understand that." So it's <laughs> it's about trying to get understood and mm. be seen and and heard in a different way. Yeah, yeah, I, just, I totally agree with what Francis is saying. And I think with the proliferation of images, I mean, I am a photographer. I'm, I'm part of the problem but like you know (laughs) with the proliferation of images sometimes just seeing a bit of text sometimes seeing something just very boldly written is really eye-catching and really grabbing I think a lot of the time too so yeah I think that's probably part of it as well the Moreland Summer Show, Language and Liberty, is on until the 14th of December uh, and is already open. And, uh, Victor, before I give all the dates and details and websites and so forth, um, do you want to briefly speak to some of the other artists who are in who are represented in the exhibition? Well, actually, what I might do, Richard, is just mention that um, as part of the Moreland Summer Show, uh, being inclusive and uh, with our theme being language and liberty, um, we have a dedicated spoken word event which uh, accompanies the exhibition each year and this year is no different so we uh, uh, we have a uh, an opportunity for uh, anyone who's involved with the written or spoken word to let it rip on the speaker's plinth uh, outside the gallery on the 7th of December 
Um, so if you're interested in being part of that, um, you can just get in touch with the gallery. Uh, that happens uh, yeah, Saturday the 7th at 2.30pm. Uh, and we've got a couple of other public programs which I'll... Um, I will mention one of them. Okay, the, yeah, I'll leave The it. Little Activist Letter Writing Workshop with Elisa Wilde is happening this Saturday, Correct, the 23rd yes. of November from 11am until midday, presented in partnership with Brunswick Bound. Uh, and uh, there's other... There's also um, uh, Becky Orpin's Take Action, Take Heart, uh, and uh, are there floor talks as well? Are any of the artists going uh, to be there to talk and discuss about their work? That's been we, done previously. Yes, we do, well, actually, this year, no. Um, I, I did think about putting a call out for, to do an artist floor talk, and then I realised um, with 70 artists, <laughs> how, how do I do that? Yeah. Do, does everyone get 30 seconds? Um, but uh, so, yes, but... Uh, um, we, what we do have this year, which we've done, is we've introduced a Peers' Choice Award mm. as well as a People's Choice Award. So, obviously, everyone can come down and, and uh, vote for their favourite work. Uh, but the artists also get the opportunity to big each other up as well and experience what it's like to be a judge, of course. Um, and uh, that's uh, it's a great book pack uh, sponsored by Brunswick Bound with titles that reflect the theme, language, language and liberty. It's um, uh, So, yes, that's... That's, a, that's the way the artists will be extra involved this year. Great. So, as we said, Moreland Summer Show 2019, Language and Liberty at Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick, 233 Sydney Road in Brunswick in the old Brunswick Town Hall, uh, is open Wednesdays to Saturdays from 11am to 5pm, Sundays 1 until 5pm. Entry is free and uh, it is on until the 14th of December. And if you want more info, jump online, moreland.vic.gov.au forward slash Coonahan hyphen gallery. I've been chatting with Victor and with Francis and with Janelle. It's been a pleasure having you all in. Thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks so much. Thank you Thanks, for having Richard. us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 